Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and again, we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God, and uh, there's already a number of people in the queue. Uh, I will probably take uh, call-ins before the first hour is up, because I really haven't decided what to talk about today, <laughs> and uh, I've kind of left it open. I mean, uh, we just did uh, Ecclesiastes 9 this morning, and we got through it just just about perfect timing to get down to the end. And one of the things that we talked about was madness, because madness is mentioned in Ecclesiastes more than any other book of the Bible. And uh, and we mentioned the fact that there's at least two different words that are translated into madness uh, from the Hebrew. and uh, But still, the one that we see in... Uh, Ecclesiastes 9 is uh, the most predominant word that is used to translate into madness uh, in, in the biblical text. And uh, in some translation, King James, it's madness, but in others, it's uh, insanity. At least in other, some other places, they don't always translate it the same they'll translate it insanity. And of course, uh, like I said, I wrote an article years ago media madness because you could see how the media was just manipulating the thinking of the people and that and the you could certainly blame that on the media they were not innocent in that uh, subterfuge but uh, the reality is that the people were the problem the people were easily manipulated into thinking a particular way uh, developing certain emotions about certain things, and uh, and that madness uh, is a result of the fact that the people have been engaged in foolish practices for centuries, decades at least, uh, in our modern time. Now, there's a great deal of the foolishness that started back in 1910. There was more in 1913. There was more in uh, 1920s and 30s. And uh, certainly World War II wasn't a real bright move. Uh, although, you know, the reality is is that World War II involved the world, the whole world, and lots of different countries. But the way in which we handle it was probably not the best. But... Uh, there were still a lot of fairly good people around that were trying to deal with a difficult situation that came about in the world because of a lot of things that we did back there in 1910 and 1913 and 1914 during World War I. World War II was a direct outcome of the way in which we dealt with World War One, And World War One was a direct outcome in what we had done in 1910, and, and we can go back to 1895, 1897, there were events going on in the world that were madness, <laughs> that were insane. And 
people were not realizing that they were insane. And of course, like I said, going back to, you know, of course, 1933 with FDR, that was madness. Madness. Absolute madness. But of course, they think, well, we have to do something because we have depression. But the depression was the result of absolute madness. Where we simply, suddenly, all of a sudden, did not want to have just weights and measures. That we gave somebody else the power over what we would use as money. Which was not money. And anybody who studied just basic law, you know, the the law that was in the United States, the legal system that was in the United States, you couldn't accept anything as payment constitutional anything is payment but gold and silver and they were removing gold and silver from the commerce of the people and the people said okay why not there's no repercussion to this we could go back in history and see that there were great repercussions of this but nobody wanted to look at that our history and this is one of the things when I started homeschooling my kids, I started going back and reading history books. I would get old history books from schools going back to, you know, the 1960s, uh, 1950s. Well, of course, I grew up in the 60s and late 50s going to school. And so I saw those books and I went to private schools. So a lot of times we had older books. In the 1950s, we had books that were older than the books you would see in the public school because we weren't so quick. Nobody was financing the changing of our books so that we were often sticking with the older books. And then I had older brothers who were using some of these books and I would look at their books. And I, I wouldn't read them thoroughly, but I would, like I do today, and I didn't realize it, but... I would just open a book and I would turn, every page was like nothing was there but print. You know, it's kind of like uh, Quidgway, Quidgway, I think it was his name, in, uh, in the Herman Melville story of Moby Dick, where he was turning the pages and he could count. He knew how to count and he was saying how many pages that he counted, 50 pages. Many words. He couldn't read the words, but he could count the pages and he was just looking at page after page, not reading anything on the pages, but counting, was impressed by the number of pages. And that's kind of the way I fanned through these books. But all of a sudden there was a page and I would look at that page and something would say, read that. And, and like I said, I, I really couldn't read very well. Uh, I never learned really to read well. I'm a very slow reader. I have a good comprehension, but I'm a very slow reader. And it's and, and it's because when I would read something, I needed to put the information somewhere in my head that I was reading. So if I read something, you know, a verse, a, a, a sentence, a paragraph, the words in that paragraph the theme of that paragraph, I would have to put it somewhere in my head so I would connect it with other things that I heard. 
And I often remembered a lot of things that I heard. I tell stories about when my father was talking to me when I was seven years old. Most of it was after seven, but I can remember stuff back in five. And uh, maybe, even, well, actually, I can remember images back when I was an infant. When I was nine months old, we moved from uh, Omaha to Texas. And uh, I was telling my mom once that I could remember laying on a couch and I described the room that I was in. Well, that was the house in Nebraska. (laughs) And she was saying, how could you know the house in Nebraska? And I could say what my mom was wearing and where she was standing, the door to the kitchen and the stairways. I could see all those things still. But I was nine months old when I was supposedly in there. And I don't know. I can't. I just was relating what I I could remember. And my mom said that was exactly what our house in Nebraska looked like. It was Lincoln, Nebraska. And uh, so, I mean, could I do that? I don't know. It sounds like, according to my mom, it was. <laughs> she was pretty reliable. But... Uh, that's just the way the brain that God gave me worked. That it, you know, I worked, I saw things in pictures. So that when I'm reading words now, I have to connect it, connect it to other things in my mind, other pictures in my mind. So that means I really contemplate the theme of every paragraph I read. And so therefore that gave me comprehension because when I had to go back and recall that, I could recall it in the context of other events of my life. But the fact that I read it at all was something drew me to try to make out those words. Like I said, I, I learned to read with the Hardy Boy Mysteries because my dad would come in and read a chapter of that and uh, stop at a chapter and says, well, it's getting pretty late. I'll I'll go. But I'll leave the light on if you want. Well, I thought, like, I never asked the... I couldn't remember asking to have the light let on, but he left the light on, and he set the book under the light. Well, in every chapter in The Hardy Boys, somebody just got hit on the head or something, you know, Chet is somewhere, and and they leave you the cliffhangers. I think the first book was The House on the Cliff. And so, therefore, I would struggle to find out, is Chet going to be okay? (laughs) So... That's how I learned to read. Uh, Till then, you know, I was too busy causing trouble. I was a precocious child that, by modern standards, would have been put on Ritalin. But fortunately, like I say, they hadn't invented it yet. So I got away with an awful lot of stuff with great sympathy for my parents. But uh, the reality is, is that, you know, I still do that when I look at books. And, uh, you know, people would send me books in the mail. I'd pan through it. But also, in life itself, you know, you get, like, you you know how to do this, you know, like we're haying right now. And I know how to, you know, I'm getting better at fixing all the equipment. All our equipment is old. Some of it's as old as I am, or older. Uh, and uh, I've learned to keep it running. I, I've learned to make it work. And so... Uh, things have been going well. I, I, I 
believe that is a gift of God if they're going well. If they don't go well, that's also a gift of God and there's something to be learning from it. But I was realizing that I, you know, I was trying to get this done to go on to something else and to go back and help finish Ecclesiastes and I did get most of our notes done with Ecclesiastes. And then this morning I added to the madness page that I have which basically I just put down all the places where the word madness shows up in the Old Testament and the New Testament. But I didn't give much explanation to it. But that madness is almost always connected to blindness and foolishness and astonishment. And astonishment is connected to you didn't, you didn't expect that. You know, like it was Monty Python, the Spanish Inquisition. Who was expecting it? Well, it, if you look at the times, it would be expected. If you knew history, it would be expected. All the economic, the loss of liberty, consequences that are going on in the world today should have been expected. It was, it was predicted thousand years ago by brighter than men than me two thousand years ago you know Polybius that if you become accustomed to living at the expense of others and depending for your livelihood on the property of others you will eventually degenerate and institute the rule of force and violence and and that degeneration will degenerate you into perfect savages finding once more in a monarch and a king And and when you become those perfect savages, madness will prevail in your society. You will destroy one another rather than do the right thing. You will destroy your own communities, your own society in mostly peaceful protests. (laughs) And, you know, I I, I stumbled on a website. Somebody, it said uh, it was suggested for you. Somebody suggested, but it doesn't say who suggested it, so I'm not sure anybody suggested it. Uh, the other 95% was the suggestion. And uh, the, the, the site is some sort of Facebook. And it's a totally woke, insane. It's, it's a website of madness. <laughs> so what's, uh, they... You know, I mean, I felt like posting. I've never find such a group of dumb people in my whole life. All their posts were like just nonsense. But that's that's me reacting to what I'm seeing. When I, I slowed down and got to the quiet place that we talked about when we were going through Ecclesiastes 9, then I could see like, well, I see a pattern here. And all these people's answers and responses. Uh, Who are these people? Why is there this pattern developing out of their responses? Because there's a method in their madness. There's a pattern in their madness. It's not a pattern of the wisdom of God. It's a pattern of of the sacrifice of fools. Who, who bite one another and like it. Uh, the, and, and they're, they're headed for destruction. I mean, they're headed for the meat grinder. But they built it. They built the meat grinder. You know, just like a, 
you could go back and, and look at Soviet Union before it was the Soviet Union when it was Russia and the revolution was coming. Some people could see that this is going to end badly. And they, they spoke up about it. But nobody heard their voice. But I say nobody. But somebody might have. But they will only hear their voice if they listen from that quiet place. And that quiet place is one not filled with ambition. Not to say that ambition is bad. Not filled with pride. Not to say that pride is bad. Not filled with uh, personal opinions. Not to say that personal opinions are bad. But if we get one thing from our study on Ecclesiastes is that our our personal wisdom is not wisdom. It's just our personal wisdom. That and and we talked about some of those uh things in this morning where we what I've been trying to do is pull these different uh, events the, that we see talked about in the different books and pull them together to show that there is a continuity in the Bible where they keep going back to the same theme. Which is again back to how I had to put a theme to every sentence, every paragraph that I was reading in order to find a place to put it in my mind. That's why I'm so fascinated with people. That it is almost impossible to really categorize people into your know, groups of people. Yet, they do it themselves. They do it to themselves. They snare themselves in categories. Categories are not really the same thing as themes. Because man is much more complex. That we can be literally hypnotized mesmerized drawn into a pattern of thought and we're swimming in that thought like fish in the sea fish in the current that that when when you're in the the pacific current the or the australian current do you know you're in that current you can't see the bottom of the ocean sky is always independently moving of where you're at can you tell where you're at? Can you tell what what is going on with you uh, in relationship to? No, you're just the current has become your world. It's like like the Finding Nemo or the fish were in the fish tank, and eventually Nemo ends up in the fish tank, <laughs> and uh, and then. The pelican finds them and all that stuff. But when they finally escape from the fish tank, they're still in bags. But they're in the ocean. But they're still in bags. You see, that's people want to be set free. Somebody wrote me just before the uh, show. I should, and I sent him the phone number. He wanted to talk to me. Uh, well, he didn't write me just before the show. I, I sent him the telephone number, the call-in telephone number, and I see there's a few numbers here that I don't recognize. And there's some numbers that don't have uh, 
they're they're blocked, so I can't see the actual number. So I, they all appear as a single number. So, but if anybody does want to ask a question, they I think they have to push one to raise their hand, and I will come back and look at that. But somebody else uh, sent me a website, Leaving Egypt Ministries. So somebody has the Leaving Egypt Ministries. Uh, and I guess they're a .com. And I'm looking, well, let's see, I'm on the About page. And uh, they say what they're about. I was wondering if they sign, who are they? They don't tell you who they are. I, to be honest with you, I'm always suspect of people who don't tell you who they are. <laughs> uh, the ministry pays coming soon, so it's a fairly new deal. But they're they're looking for articles. Somebody said, and I haven't had a chance to read it. That's the thing is, there are so many things to do. And back to my haying, we have three times the hay that we had last year, so it's. There's a lot of extra work in it. And uh, I was anxious to get it done so I could get back and prepare for the next shows that we do in the morning mostly. But I could be doing Ecclesiastes 10. But I thought I would open it for calls right away. And I don't see anybody's hand raised, so you didn't push one. So that's okay. But... um, Leaving Egypt is not a difficult thing to do, although there's a lot of bad ways to do it. And I say not a difficult thing to do. Uh, it, it's, it may be very difficult to stay alive after you've done it, <laughs> but it's not so difficult to do. Uh, but the, it doesn't do you any good. Dathan left Egypt. Uh, Korah left Egypt. But they still had Egypt in their hearts. People didn't realize what was so bad about Egypt. And they knew a lot more than people today. Because the people today read the Bible and they say, well, I read all about it, but they don't know the meaning of words like leaven or stones or altars, the altars of Nisi. They don't know what that means. They have no idea. Uh, the altars of sacrifice. What sacrifice? For what purpose? How, how do you make it? And who do you make it? And what, what value is it? Well, we burn it up. We, we burn up sheep on piles of stone. No, they didn't. That's a, that's a total fiction and a fraud. But what is not a fiction and a fraud is that everybody's back in the bondage of Egypt again. That's, that's really clear. That should be absolutely clear. But they don't see it. And they don't see it, even though it's right there in black and white. The bondage of Egypt. You didn't own your land. You didn't own your sheep. You didn't own your cattle. You didn't really own your children. You didn't own your wife. They could set the men free, but they were going to keep their wives. So, they they were going to let the men go out, but the women couldn't go out. And the children couldn't go out. Whoa. And, of course, that's actually the law that Moses laid down. But he laid it down so you understand that there's 
if somebody gives you your wife, you know, and that's what they, you know, all the marriages, you know, the husband, the father comes out and gives the bride away. And he's giving it to a guy. And, you know, like somebody who's making a big thing out of the fact is, so you think of a woman as property. That she's the property of the man. What was that Tate guy? Which I don't agree with a lot of things Tate says. But if you say enough, you're going to say some things that are true. And he does say some things that are true. Now, which ones are true? Which ones are not? Well, I don't listen to him enough to tell you. But the idea, they said, well, why is a woman property? Well, the fact is, women today are property. They're not the property of their husbands. They're the property of the state. You say, well, that's ridiculous. Well, you know, the men are a property of the state. The children are a property of the state. You say, well, that's not true. Well, you don't want to admit that it's true. I get that. I mean, nobody wants to admit that they're slaves and that they don't own their own labor. But you don't own your own labor. You are slaves. You get to keep some of it. But before you walk away today with any of your pay, a portion of that pay is taken out. Because you have to have a tax ID number in order to do anything. You know, PayPal wants to do that. They want to take 25% of all of our book sales, which aren't really sales. We give the book away. It's published for free. But if you want us to go hire a printer and print up the book, well, it's it's for sale on the Internet. You You don't need to do that. But now they want to take... 25% right off the top because we don't have a tax ID number. Now, we've gone through all this with PayPal before. And they conceded that the church is not a business and the church doesn't need an ID number and we could still have the account because the church is not a part of the state. Once we have an ID number of the state, then we are a part of the state. We're admitting that we have a tax liability. We don't have a tax liability because we're not in the business of profit. If we were in the business of profit, we wouldn't put all the books on the Internet for free. You you don't have to even sign in to get our secret, secret information. You can just download the whole books, you know, and all the articles. We just give them away for free. The audios, they're they're all for free. I mean, how many ministries do that? You know, their question in leaving Egypt is, you know, I mean, they say right out, uh, well, let's see, that's the home page, uh, the ministry page, and, of course, there's the about page, and I could go look at some of their articles and see what the heck they look like, and uh, the... You know, their about page, we are an unregistered nonprofit ministry sharing the word of God with people and carrying out the great calling of the Holy Spirit and taking dominion over our world. Well, which world? Advance the kingdom of God and free ourselves and our pros- pro- properties from the grips of men who have plundered humanity from time immemorial well those men who have plundered 
humanity. The greatest destroyers of liberty are those who give to the people gifts, gratuities, and benefits. And like I was posted to somebody, if you don't take the benefit, they can't plunder you. Peter said, it's your covetous practices that make you merchandise. It's your covetous practices that curse your children. We got to that at the end of the the program this morning. But, uh, you know, I haven't read the whole thing, so I can't go all the way down to what there. Here's a list of our planned objectives. Writing articles on God and liberty, publishing books, journals, and newsletters, and pamphlets, printing short radical leaflets to (laughs) spread around churches. Well, I've never set out to print radical pamphlets or leaflets. But uh, because radical is an opinion of the reader. Now, I knew that some of the things I write would be considered radical. But that wasn't my goal. My goal was to share the truth that God is giving me and showing me. And I so immediately I have to share it with somebody else. But I know it's not going to be accepted. But that goes back to the, somebody writing about the exosome theory versus the virus theory. And they even mentioned it in the little video they put there that some virologists say that viruses are exosomes. Absolutely. Viruses, what we call viruses, are exosomes. Uh, one of the things they said in the video is that exosomes are not contagious. Yes, they are. Not all of them, but they can move from one person to the next. Exosome is an envelope of mRNA messaging. And you can you can actually, by associating with other people that have developed certain immunities, when they release exosomes in their body, you can pick up on those exosomes and they can enter into your body and send messages to your cells. And your cells, of course, the few little exosomes that they put into your body aren't going to tell many cells much. But if your cells begin to replicate those exosomes and the mRNA message in that, then it, the message that came from their body will spread all over your body to all the billions of cells in your body. And so exosomes are uh, contagious in that sense. But it's not going to make you sick. It actually may help you keep from becoming sick. Because one of the messages that your body will send out is don't replicate this exosome. They came from a bat. (laughs) Or somebody who's bat crazy. (laughs) Who's uh, doing gain-of-function research in the Wuhan lab. They're, They're bat crazy for doing that. And the people who funded them are bat crazy but I've had people tell me they are the nicest people and the sweetest people and that they're so smart. And to me, they're insane. But see, that's the opinion part. That's my opinion. God will sort it out because God is the creator of the universe and the laws of nature are everywhere. They're in Wuhan. They're in Nebraska. They're in Texas. They're in Missouri. They're in the Congo. They're in Europe. 
They're in Asia. They're everywhere. No matter where you go, you're still subject to the law of nature. You're, which is the same as right reason. You're subject to right reason even if you are unreasonable. So the question is, what is your right reason? What is your truth? And is your truth in conformity to the right reason? And of course, right reason, the will of God, uh, divine will, they're co-relatives phrases. They all mean the same thing. They're just different ways of saying it. Just like uh, sacrifice the fools and the sacrifice the devils and the Corban of the Pharisees. These are all the same thing. And the, the sacrifice of Saul and the forced sacrifice of Saul where he forced the sacrifice of the people to fund his army. That was a foolish thing. Now, once you understand that in the text about Saul and King David in, in 1 Samuel, you should have great question about the idea of having a professional army in your country. You say, well, we have to have a professional army. No, you don't. I mean, you may have to because you don't have the things that would protect you from not having to have them. I mean, you have to have a social safety net in the United States run by the government. Or people will be starving in the streets and people will be going hungry and all kinds of people will be robbing each other and it will be just pandemonium. If you did not have a social safety net in the United States for the needy of your society, people would be starving to death right now. They would be dying like flies. They would be killing each other. And that's a fact. That's the way it would be. But the reason that's the way it would be because you didn't have a social safety net Recommended by Christ. Because you haven't been doing what Christ said. You tell me you love Christ, but you don't want to do what he said to do. So, nature, the law of nature, despises a vacuum. So when you didn't do what Christ did, FDR did what he did. LBJ did what he did. And, and, and Dewey did what he did. Because you weren't doing what Christ said to do. You weren't keeping the commandments. You weren't keeping his commandments. You weren't caring about your neighbor as much as you cared about yourself. And when you did this, and FDR filled the gap and created this other institution, you turned a blind eye to the fact that that's a covetous practice. And when you turned a blind eye to that, you couldn't see other things. And so they took truth out of your history books. And that, like I was saying, so when I was picking up all those history books and reading them and looking at them and paging them, I would say, well, there's stuff missing. They're ta- and that's where it started out first, is they just simply took certain things out. They didn't say stuff that was really contrary to history. They just didn't tell you the whole history. 
And, and they sometimes embellished in, in what they call sanitized history. They did do some of that. But the goal was so that you didn't know history. Because later on, they could print history books that actually told you lies. And those lies, and, and it's very interesting, the people in the 1619 Project and all those kinds of things, they don't mind history books lying to you. They just want you to believe their lies. You think it's all about the fact that they're, you know, that, that the United States was built on slavery? Well, yeah, now. <laughs> Goes back to that property thing. It's a woman property. She's a property of the state. If she goes to work, 14%, 20%, of depending on how much she makes, of her wages will go to the state. It will, it will literally go to the state. Because her labor doesn't belong to her. It belongs to the state. And they can up that. They can increase that. So that, you know, and, and they have been doing it for the last 90 years. Because it started out like one and a half percent. And, and you could make enough money to buy three homes in Nebraska. You could buy three homes in Nebraska and you still wouldn't owe any, made enough money to buy three homes in Nebraska and you still wouldn't have made enough money to owe one dime in income tax. Yet income tax was the law for everybody who got a social security number on their wages and salaries. I mean, you could always tax a corporation or fiduciaries of corporations, but individual labor, you couldn't tax that because the people own their individual labor. That when they did $20 worth of work and somebody gave them $20, there was no income, there was no gain because he was out the $20 labor. And somebody compensated him for his labor and that's $20. And so, there was no gain. But when you waive a right to a portion of your labor, it becomes gain. Now, what you earn with your labor, you get to keep Maybe 80%. Maybe you only get to keep 50%. And the other 50% goes to the person who actually owns your labor. See, you have a legal right to work. Means that you have a legal title to the profits of the labor you do. Well, you have a legal title to land... Everybody knows, you know, like I own this land, you have a legal title. Yeah, I have a legal title to this land here that where my house is at or my business is at. I have a legal title to that. Well, then you go look up the definition for a legal title. It's an apparent title that carries with it no beneficial interest, no beneficial use. If you want to use the land you think you own legal title to, you have to pay the use tax. We call it property tax. You say you own your car. Well, you have to you have to pay the use tax and get a little sticker that says that I paid the use tax. Then you get to use your car. But you only have legal title to the car. You don't actually own the benefit of owning that car. You don't own the benefit of owning that land. And you don't own the benefit of your labor. It's There's laws on the book where they, if you're a member, 
you know, like if you want to go get a passport, you go get a passport. You're agreeing to the fact that they can grab you on the street and put you to work in civilian work projects and you unquestionably have to do everything they say. That's law is on the books right now. And you say, well, I didn't know that. Well, you know, like somebody was pointing out that in Canada, if somebody attacks you, can you defend yourself? Do you have the right to defend yourself? One guy says, you mean with my arms? Well, just to defend yourself, whatever you, you know, you know, if he's sitting there, a strangling you. He's got his hands around your throat. And he's strangling you. And you might die. You might lose consciousness and then they would finish strangling you or do whatever, you know. Could you grab the lamp on the stand next to you and hit him in the head with the lamp? Do you legally have that right to do that? Canada, no, you don't. You could be arrested for assault because you fought back. You don't have a right to fight back. You don't even have a right to defend yourself. You're to call the police and the police will defend you. That's that's in Canada. That's actually, I've seen the same thing in England. That, you know, if you hear a prowler in the house and you you can't go to the kitchen and get a butcher knife and go see who the prowler is. And you can't, can't, you can't even go get your umbrella if it has a point on it. Because that's an offensive weapon. And you're not allowed to do it. I mean, they, I've read that directly off of the Queen's you know, website on what you can do if somebody breaks in. I mean, you're supposed to just, you know, if you're a woman and you hear that a man has broke into your house. You hear him moving around in your house. You're just supposed to stay in bed. I guess that's so he doesn't have to drag you back to the bed to rape and murder you. But that's what they actually tell you. Just stay in bed. <laughs> that's not real popular in Texas. But evidently, it's the way they're thinking. That's madness, of course. And some of the Canadians were saying, yes, that's madness. That's crazy. The guys, actually, they wrote that out. They voted on it. They put it into a law. And they don't think it's madness. They think there's something wrong with you to think that there's something wrong with that. So how do you combat that? It will take divine intervention. So... Yeah, I went down a lot of their lists on this page, and there's a lot of interesting things, but uh, I'm not getting to the meat of what they're doing, and I'm also seeing that their interest is in setting themselves free. Now, they do seem to suggest they want other people to be set free, but there seems to be a lot of blame on the world has done this, that they have raped and pillaged us, they have taken advantage of us. I would think we would be better off saying, wait a minute, we have sinned. We have no social welfare coming out of the churches today. Most of the churches today, the vast majority of the churches today, that doesn't 
eventually require that you go to the state and ask the state for its benefits. That you make the state your benefactor. Even though Christ said, no, you're not to make the governments your benefactor. That's impure religion. And, And nobody seems to catch it. Nobody seems to see it. Now, the people I see in the queue, I'll look, go back here and look in the queue. I assume that most of them, I don't recognize all the numbers. I, oh, I do see one number and I do see a hand up. So I'll take that call here. So I'll take that raised hand. I know who this is. 5580, your mic is live. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Are you on speakerphone? Yeah, let's, let's take it off speakerphone. I'll get better sound when we're not on speakerphone. Oh, okay, can you hear me? Yeah, much better. I'm, I'm adjusting the sound, so keep talking. Okay, so I have two questions. I do have a guest here with me. My neighbor is sitting with me. Um, my first question was, or it's like a statement question. So um, I think four years ago I was trying to set myself free, thinking that I had the power to do that. And so I went ahead and, you know, just like how you do speak with, uh, there's no paperwork or things that you can do to get out, of, get away from the world and stuff like that. Well, I went through a whole bunch of stuff doing that, and but then during the time throughout, you know, I started to learn more, and my I, the Lord started to open my eyes, and I started to see that there is no possible way that I could ever make myself free. And um, but in the process of doing that, you know, I gave up my social security number, you know, I left my job and. And, you know, I went out and moved, sold my house. And, and, and um, you know, sometimes I think it was at my own imagination. But even now that I'm doing things, I'm, I'm still working. I'm still working hard. I'm, um, it's just, you know, like sometimes I think, well, you know, even though I would never be able to pay off the debt or this tribute or anything, I, I felt that it was right later on that it was right to do what I did but maybe I kind of took a you know a rougher way of doing it and um and sometimes I think well you know I get these all these job offers and and I get these opportunities and and it always comes back to me is that like a snare you know am I being offered something that that I could sit down and, and and end up being in a place that is not a good place. And, um, you know, it just, this is something that I wrestle with a lot. Right. Uh, the, the truth is, is that I, I can't say what you did is wrong or right. That there's no way that I would necessarily know that unless God gave me the divine inspiration, which he doesn't usually do in matters such as that. I can tell you this just from practical uh, years of experience, you probably didn't do everything right. <laughs> but we never do. Uh, life is a struggle. We struggle to find out what we need to do and the best way to do it. And But we always have to remember and be willing to see, I maybe didn't do that right. That was maybe me. That wasn't God leading me. That was me. I found out all about this stuff and I reacted negatively against it and I wanted to get away from it but I you know I can talk about the spirit that we should have in approaching this but I don't do it so that people will memorize that and try to imitate that in their own mind because you don't want to imitate any image that I produce in your mind 
you want to let God write upon your mind. So, mostly, finding the way, like I said this morning in Ecclesiastes 9, is in the quiet. God is going to speak to you in the quiet of your heart and your mind. Because when he writes upon your heart and your mind, it's in the quiet. It's not, he's not going to, it's not in the thunder. You know, it's, it's not in the wind. It's in the stillness that God is going to tell you. And the whole of the world is trying to create commotion. And to get us away from the stillness. And it's going to constantly tempt you. And you're, the only one who can deal with the temptations that come to you is you. And hopefully in that temptation, it's just like, you know, to carry, carry your burdens. That they will, that may make you stronger. And trying to perceive what you should do that will, that may make you stronger if you, if you strive with the right spirit. So, what does the right spirit look like? Well, and I pointed out when I was reading that website, are, is your goal to set yourself free? Or is your goal to free somebody else? A lot of people talk about what's coming and they, they want to leave a better world for their children. Well, that's, that's a good approach, is that you're thinking about passing something better to somebody else rather than making life better for you. You're willing to sacrifice today so that somebody else will have something better. Well, of course, that's that's the whole of the kingdom. They, the whole reason they went to the altars and sacrificed their oil, their their sheep, their their the leather they made, whatever it is that they did in their trade, they sacrificed that. They gave it to the Levites. On the altars of Levite stones. They gave it away and they didn't know necessarily where it went. They didn't know who, they did, they gave up the right to choose who it was going to go to. So they're, they're really giving it up. If I say, well, I'm going to give, then it's a gift from me. But if I give it up to the Levite and the Levite gives, it's not a gift from the Levite, theoretically. It's a gift from God because it belongs to God. The Levite belongs to God. Now, he has to make certain choices. But the reality is, is that we just cast our bread upon the waters. We didn't, we're not doing favors for particular individuals. And then we can go and say, well, I helped you when you were hungry. And I, I did this. No, God did. But you sacrifice. You chose to sacrifice a portion of your life. Now, that doesn't mean you can't help out individuals. But this idea of giving the life that God gave you for free and giving it away for free, expecting nothing in return, draws you by its nature closer to God. Wanting to be free, often free mostly of your own mistakes or the par- your parents' mistakes, is not, is not that noble a cause. And so it's going to cloud your thinking. And what you can do. It's, you know, what, what is the one thing they say? I can't even remember where it says it. Though he may slay me. It's Joshua. Though he may slave me, slay me. You know, I shall serve him. I know not, of course, what others may take. Kind of like Patrick Henry. But I will, I am willing to be sacrificed. 
in order to do the right thing. And I talked about that this morning, that your motivation has to be to do righteousness. Not to judge other people, not to judge yourself, not to judge your parents, not to judge Klaus Schwab or anybody else. But your your goal has to be to find out what is righteous for me to do in this moment. Now, and God may say, tend sheep, cut wood, take care of your children. See, I was out there, we cut all kinds of hay. Uh, I raked hay, we baled hay, and I had another field that I, I had gone around and we had mowed the whole field. But now I needed to bale that so I could pick up those bales so that I could rake the center part of the field. And I was pushing it to bale that hay too soon. It's a little innocent thing. And it was pretty dry, but it was taking extra long to dry because the outside of the field had thicker hay. And so the wind rows were huge. And so I raked it over once and I raked it over twice and it was still not dry. <laughs> not cured. And me, I wanted to get it bailed so that I could get the bales picked up. So that I could, you know, get them in the stack. So that I could go on to do other things and then supposedly have enough time to create more studies so that people understand Ecclesiastes and Exodus and Ezra and Jeremiah and all these other books of the Bible and see how they fit exactly in with what Paul was saying, what what Peter was saying, what James was saying. And so I want to share this because I see it and I see it's important for everybody, but do I want to do it for me? Or do I want to do it because I genuinely care about other people? Well, the fact is, we're, we're so complex, those could be a mixed emotions. You can have both of those ideas at the same time. Where you want to do things for your family, for your children, for your neighbor, for the people you don't even know yet. But you also want to do them for yourself. Well, how do you get to that state where you only want to do it because the God of creation wants you to do it that way wants you to go down that path you know i mean christ had this same conflict when it it came to the fact that he knew that he was headed towards the crucifixion and it was close he had to make the decision my will or thine will he had to you know he didn't want to go to the cross he makes that very clear that if if this cup could pass before me and I don't have to do it, that would be great. But ultimately, he says, thy will or that. But during that process of contending with this in his prayer, which was a form of meditation in communication with God, much deeper than probably any of us have ever experienced, because Christ was one with the Father, and we see that in the outcome of his prayer. And he says, I, I give up my will. What I want. Clearly, I don't want to do this. My will is to not go to the cross. But clearly, the Father, and we don't understand the dynamics of that, but clearly, the Father, that's what the Father wanted him to do. Now, why? We could talk about that till the cow come home. 
But that choice is up to each individual. And so whatever you've decided in the past is now in the past. You can look at the past and hopefully learn from the past. And you can question, did I do that completely for unselfish motives? Or did I do that because of selfish motives? Did I do that simply because God was putting on my, God puts it on your heart that you needed to make a change? That you needed to do something different? And you try to figure out what it is that I want to do. And how I want to do it. But it's the same as cutting wood. You know, you know, <laughs> when I split wood, you know, I can, when I have a big log, I can go down and I can hit exactly where I want to hit. You know, like a, you know, and I hit here, I hit here, I hit here, and it splits in a big log. Other guys come along and they say, how do you do that? How do you, how do you hit exactly where you need to hit? And I think, well, how does it that you don't know how to do that? Well, I can't remember when I didn't know how to split a a bolt of wood. But I'm sure there was a period of time where I was learning it. But who's my teacher? Is it me? Is it my own knowledge? Well, and I just spoke to somebody this morning, a very bright and intelligent person. And I said, it is as hard for a smart man to get into the kingdom of God as it is for a rich man. Because a smart man's wealth is his intellect. And God gives some men remarkable intellects. Gives other men remarkable skills in other areas. But we're not going to get into heaven, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, which is not a you know, like we go to a certain place or something. I mean, it is, it is geographical, but really what it is is spiritual. The kingdom of God is everywhere. But if you walk in the Spirit, then you're walking in the kingdom of God. If you're not walking in the Spirit, it doesn't matter where you go, it might turn into a hell. But the, the, the intelligent man has to set his intellect aside and eat only of the tree of life. His final decisions must be based on his love of the tree of life. And that's what we see with Christ. His final decision was not my will but thine. He expressed what his will was. But he says, but I'm going to do what your will is. And I experienced that the other day. Should I run the baler around that outside ring even though it wasn't quite dry? I could rationalize, well, it'll cure in the bale. And it will, to some degree. But what I realized that it was my ambition that was driving me to make that choice. And I, so I, I went another route. But, uh, when you were first making the decision to do something different, you're not gonna do everything right. You're not gonna do everything perfect, because the real mission is to learn to walk in the Spirit. And nobody can teach you that but the Spirit. We, you and I can talk about it and talk about it and talk about it. But you're, you and your wife can talk about it. And your kids can even express their opinion as they get older. And they probably will, whether you like it or not. But ultimately, you have to let go of your will and do the will of the Father. And that's, it's difficult to tell because you only know it 
by the Spirit. Now, I know what your profession was before. You had to have some intelligence in order to do that. You were probably somewhat good at it because uh, you did it for many, many years. But the reality is, is that that knowledge, that that intellect that you have and the skills that you develop, they're as much a part of the temptation not to do what the Father wants as anything else. But I would suspect that eventually God will bring those skills back into your life on His terms. Just like I said to you in one of the last calls I think we had, I think it was with you, is that my father made a choice to study the law. And he thought it was like I got in the wrong line at college. He wondered why he was doing it. But if he hadn't studied the law, he wouldn't have helped me understand the law as I was growing up. So what you have learned may come into play later. But the key thing is, is it your will or is it the God's will? And that is only decided in each moment, each moment of your life. And uh, it's your life. Uh, I can't give you that answer. So anyway, I don't know if you started to try to talk. I heard some noise on the headphone. Did you have something else that you want to say or any comment about what I just said? Um, no, one other thing is that, um, so I was reading about meditation and, um, I was reading about how, you know, your one foot is stationary and the other one is behind and, and like we're in the middle or we step back and we see where we're at. We don't, we might be doing bad things or, uh, we might be doing good things, but we have to step back. We can't let the things that, uh, you know, the, you know, our sins or anything just kind of govern us but this is the thing so i'm sitting there and i'm milking the goats right and then i know how much milk comes out of the goats and i get to a point where i say well okay that's it it's starting the stream is getting low but i know that if i don't take the rest of that milk out you know they're not going to produce more milk or continue to produce milk and so within that that time i'm thinking okay should i do it or should I not should I just hurry up and get you know go about my business and stuff and I I stop and I'm thinking to myself I'm saying what why am I even thinking that that's not the mind of Christ and and I feel like is that part of the meditation where you stop and you and you're quiet and and you realize that there are things that you need to take care of that are greater than your own satisfaction and self and and i i start to see that in everything i do like you know if i'm helping someone with uh you know building or doing anything that i'm doing it's like i stop and i think about you know the little things that i'm that that i like i'm rushing and i want to get it done so i'm going to cut corners but i i don't because i stop for a minute is that the kind of meditation where where you where you're like in the middle, and you want to cultivate it, where it, it's just the intent of your heart to do whatever the whatever Christ has you to do. Well, we're dealing with an infinite kingdom, so there's many many layers and levels of this. And I've told this story many times that you know I did all kinds of work to keep my family fed, and 
uh, I know how to do a lot of different things, so I had lots of tools. And so I couldn't get all my tools in the pickup at the same time. So if I was going to go on a job, whether it was building a shop or a house or a remodel or whatever it was, I would say, well, I need these tools and these tools. I had all my tools organized and according to boxes and the colors of the boxes. And I'd put paint marks on so I knew what was in that. And I would say, well, I need this box and this box. And some boxes were always in there. But I don't need that box. And I'm saying this kind of in my mind as I'm packing up early in the morning. And uh, and then something would keep drawing my attention back to that box. And I would say, all of a sudden my tone and it was probably from the beginning, was like, I don't need that box. It was almost like argumentative. That that I don't need that. I'm not going to be doing that today. And all of a sudden, one day, I realized, like, I heard that argumentative tone in my, in my mind because I'm not really having the conversation. I'm just rejecting the use of that box. And uh, I realized that I'm arguing with something that's telling me that I need that box. It's drawing my attention to that box, and I'll correlate it with what I've already said because it's part of the same thing. When I'm paging through the book, and all of a sudden it wants me to read this one paragraph, and that paragraph is going to teach me something that's important, that will end up in a book or an article somewhere else down the road that I don't even know I'm going to write. But, Something drew my attention to that. Something said, look at this. I mean, it's it's literally like that paragraph lights up on the page. And I can see that paragraph. Everything else is just kind of a blur of words. And I read that. And maybe the only paragraph I get out of the entire book. And I've actually tried that where I'm just fanning through the book. And all of a sudden I stop at a page and I look. And there's a paragraph there on one side of the page. And I read that and I thought, well, that's interesting. And uh, and I thought, well, maybe there is something good in this book. Because I kind of dreaded it. Because the book came in the mail. Somebody sent it to me. Somebody thought I ought to read it. And so I started re- reading and reading the book. I never could find any. It was a huge, thick book. And uh, I never found anything else of, of interest. There was nothing else that stood out. But just fanning through the book had drawn my attention to it. So now I'm in my shop and my attention is drawn towards a box. You know, I'm looking around for what I need to take and attention to that box. And I'm rejecting that thing that brought my attention to the box. And I'm saying, well, I don't need that. But there was something argumentative, like there was somebody else on the other end of the conversation. And it drew my attention back to the box. And I said, well, I don't need that. You know, in my mind, I don't say the words. I don't even say the words in my mind. I just reject that. And then I realized that I was rejecting it like somebody rejects an argument. And I'm thinking, well, nobody's arguing with me. (laughs) So who am I arguing with? And I realized what I was... The Holy Spirit was saying, pick that box up and put it in your truck. Because I can tell you that this happened many times. And I did need that box when I got on the job. And I made joke about it. I says, well, I don't know what the Holy Spirit knows, but it sure knows tools. Because it knew what I was going to need that day. Well, I've seen it in much more complicated things where, I mean, we were getting ready for the retreat one time. And then we had a big crew of people putting things together. And uh, people would say, well, I need this and I need that. 
and you know this happened like four or five times just in one afternoon and it happened several times during that retreat every time they said that I reached into my pocket and I pulled out what they needed and it got it got kind of spooky (laughs) someone says how come every time we say we need something it's in your pocket what is in your pocket well some of those things I just put in my pocket that morning I didn't know why I was going to need it but almost everything that was in my pocket came out sometime during the day and handed it to somebody who had need of it. Now, it doesn't happen all the time like that. It's happened many times. And sometimes it's happened miraculously. And it actually, I think, literally maybe saved lives. When something all of a sudden occurred to me that or, or I knew I needed something. And I requested it and it appeared. I would like those books, those law books on my front steps just appeared out of the blue. I I knew where they probably came from and eventually I found out. I I can tell you a story where we had somebody from the government who was coming to spy on us. He's a known spy for the government. He's an informant agent for the government. I can tell you where he lives. He's probably passed away now, but he was coming to one of our retreats. And when he called me up and asked about coming, I said, sure, and everything. But when I went to hang up the phone, I was hanging it up in slow motion because there was something. I said, there's something more to it. It just seemed like an old guy who wanted to come. We had lots of people that come. But I knew there was something different about this. I didn't know what. But I pondered it and I asked the question, so what? What's, what is with this call? And somebody who lives miles out on the desert Almost never ever comes by. They've passed away now. They came to the house the next day. And they held out a magazine in their hand. Two hands. Holding a single magazine in their hand. Like you would hold a pillow with a ring on it. You know, just flat in front of me. And said, I thought you would need this book. They had never done that before. They never did that since. It was just a magazine. I thought you'd need this magazine. And, or you would want it or something to that effect. And and I reached with both hands and I picked it up and I said, thank you. And I, I looked at the title on the magazine and I thought, like, why would I want to read this? <laughs> but it came in such a strange way that I knew I had to look at it. And later on I looked at it. And again, just paging through. It was a very thin magazine. Just throwing the pages over, looking at the pictures. just throwing. All of a sudden I saw one picture and I read the caption to it. It was the only one I read. And it's mentioning the guy that was on the phone the day before. And who was the leader of a place called Elohim City. And I almost get his name several times now, but God didn't give me his name, so I guess we're going to leave him anonymous. But you can figure out who used to be the head of Elohim City. And he was in the article because that's where Timothy McVeigh was going when he was captured, he was going to Elohim City, which is all very confusing stuff, but that had nothing to do with us. But he was coming to this place. And in that, it was testimony in a court that revealed that he had been an informant for the FBI for 20 years. And he's coming here. <laughs> and I thought like, well, thanks for the heads up, God. <laughs> so what do I do with that? How do I react to that? You know, when when you know, people say, anybody going to need a ride from Portland? 
And I said, well, yeah, I think he actually was landing in uh, Seattle. And then he was going to fly to Portland. But I think the guy picked him up in Seattle. I can't remember how it went. I know who eventually brought him. And he still comes, usually. He's on one of our congregations. But uh, uh, he brought him. And we knew he was a spy from the FBI. And I, I told just a couple of people. I said, you know, like this guy's a spy from the FBI. <laughs> you know, we don't have anything to hide. But, you know, don't say stupid stuff. You know, and I said it to the people who normally say stupid stuff. <laughs> and not that they're stupid. I had a great deal of respect for the individual. But they don't always know that what they say, that it can be taken lots of different ways. And, you know, like he says, so it's our job to spoil the Egyptians and everything. And, uh, well, yeah, we didn't spoil the Egyptians. God spoiled the Egyptians. <laughs> well, it wasn't because we were clever or deceitful or devious or filed the right papers. But God spoiled the Egyptians. What we have to do is what God wants us to do in the moment. And he will show us, but we have to be willing to listen. And when we listen and we get part of the message that something's wrong with this call, it's not what you think it was. There's something more to it. Don't fill in the blanks with your suspicions and your anger and your fears, which everybody wants you to have. But be still. And no, this is what meditation is. I don't know where you got this right foot, left foot before and stepping back. You must have been reading something other than what I wrote. I don't remember writing anything about that. Was that from somebody else who was writing about meditation? No, that no, that was uh, from the meditation page. I, I, I'm probably saying it wrong. Oh, okay. But um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back and read it. Okay, okay. Because it didn't quite sound like me, but there is talk about... What, what you're, the idea of meditation is that you're waiting upon the Lord. I can't think of a better phrase right now that describes meditation. That you're not, you're not trying to exercise your brain to find new levels of consciousness and awareness where you will become more aware individual. What you're trying to do is hear what God wants you to know in this moment. And, and he told me when I hung up the phone that there was something more to that call than that was said on the call. There's something more to this. I had, and I, my answer to that was, you'll have to show me, which is way back to the original prayer. Whatever I was missing, you have to show me. And the law books show up. The very next day, this person from out on the desert shows up with this magazine, never before and ever since hands it to me like it's some kind of gift on a platter. I mean, both her hands were holding them. There's no reason to hold this little thin magazine with two hands. It seems so strange and awkward, but I accepted it graciously and I thanked her for it. And then later, we, and there was another incident where somebody out of the blue called me and warned me that there could be agents coming to the festival and that I had to be careful. And they never did that before or since. And they don't even, they're not really a part of our congregation. They're a part of my life, but they're not a part of the congregations or anything. So there I had my two witnesses that were saying that somebody was coming. That was not who they said they were. And uh, I, that's often 
what I run into when I'm up against should I go, not go, should I turn left, should I turn right, I'll get witnesses. Sometimes I just know. It's just so strong I know to go this way. But I also, you know, I just like uh, a Gideon's fleece. Sometimes I, I ask for another witness. Hopefully I do that less and less and just move in the moment with the Spirit of God. But, uh, you know, I still have to take care of my family. I have to do all this writing and I, some people want me to stop taking care of the animals and the hay and everything, leave that to somebody else. I don't know who else I'm supposed to leave it all to. But, uh, just focus on, but the truth is, I have to go out and do physical things. I have to go out and walk and expend energy. You know, I, I'm up and down off of these old tractors and swathers and stuff like that. I'm 70, 75 years old next month. I, I don't have any problem doing it. Climbing up, climbing down, climbing up, climbing down. <laughs> Jumping off. Uh, but I need to do that. I need to stay physically active. But yeah, I use a little bit more help and... And, uh, but it, when God's ready, it will send it. But we have to do more than this. We have to do a lot more. It, it isn't, the animals have taught me a great deal. You hear my stories about the animal and the livestock. And when you were talking about milk and the goat, I think of the milk and the meat. And, uh, it's in every, every moment, you know, do, do I, what is it that you have to make that habit of going, what does God want me to do? <laughs> and you can, and your inner compass will tell you. Because what God tells you to do, you should be at peace with. What the world tells you to do, you will find that conflict. But occasionally the Holy Spirit will tell you what to do, and you will argue with the Holy Spirit. And you have to realize that. Because you're still flesh and blood. You're, you're still a man. You still have all these habits that were put in you as you were learning other skills and growing up and everything. And that's one of the great things about homeschooling is I came face to face with a lot of the trauma that I had in school when I found that trauma affecting the way that I handled my own children. And so that was a blessing to me. I often wonder, did I learn more homeschooling my kids <laughs> than my kids did? <laughs> and to some degree, I probably did. Uh, by homeschooling my kids, one of the things that they were protected with is they didn't learn all the other trash that they're teaching you in the schools. I think even when I went to private schools, that, and I have gone back and visited some of them that I went to, there was a spirit the years that I was in those schools. There was a teacher here and there that had an effect on my life. I could go back and go through 50 teachers and not find that same spirit. God is in control of way more, but the problem is we don't let God run things in our life. The world wants you to be like them and be drunk on your own personal wisdom. And so I'm always caught between because I'm talking to you about the wisdom of the ages and what's in the Bible and what it really means and all this stuff. But not, all that is, if we go back to the study on Ecclesiastes, all that is vanity. Because the only wisdom there is, 
is what God tells you in the moment. That's why we talked this morning about the poor man and his wisdom that saved the city. Nobody could remember the poor man, but really what nobody could remember was the wisdom. Because you cannot put God in a bottle. You cannot carry it from room to room or generation to generation. This is because God is spiritual and you have to walk in the spirit to hear God in the moment. Because what is right in one moment may not be right in the next moment. You can't say that I always do it this way. You have to do it the way God wants you to do it in that moment. And although, you know, the the menial tasks of milking a goat may seem like little to nothing. But, you know, I've heard uh, people talking about similar things. And I hear them rationalizing their choices. Well, I'm doing it because this and I'm doing it because of that. And I'm concerned when I hear that. You know, because that's the same thing I did. I don't need that toolbox. I don't, I don't need to do that. I need to do this because I need to put my son in the car and take him to the hospital right now. Because that's the right thing to do. That's what I've always been taught to do. And I'm out of my element. I don't know how to save him and I know that he's, his life is in danger. But somewhere along the line I said to God, you know, I stopped for a moment. I remember standing right over there. I stopped for a moment. <laughs> and I said, is this what I should do? And I, I got the car parked, the engine's running, everything. And then suddenly words came out of my mouth. I, w- I don't know where they came from, in a sense, because it wasn't something I would have thought of. But I do know where they came from. And they made a difference. And so I should be a believer. <laughs> but I'm not going to remember that moment. I can relate it now because God gives me these stories to tell the other people. But in the moment, the next moment when I'm in crisis or there's a crisis around about me, the answer may be different. And the, and the spirit will fill in those gaps. So, but you get ready for the big moments with a million small moments. And so what you need to be doing, I mean, obviously it's a great thing to set aside for, you know, 15 minutes a day in the morning and the evening or whenever you choose to meditate. To wait upon the Lord to show you. And then you get up and you go do it. But eventually, you really literally want to be in this almost constant state of meditation. Because meditation isn't blurring out your mind. It's it's blurring out your vanity, your pride, your ambition. And have one ambition. Not my will, but thine. And you walk in that in peace. You want to walk with God every moment of every day. Walk in the Spirit every moment of every day. But I can tell you this, that's not the way God works. He will go away. He will He will leave you. Seemingly leave you. He won't his presence will not be as strong. The same as when you breathe. You breathe in air. And then you breathe out air. And when you breathe out air, you have no air in your lungs. But you have to breathe out air in order to breathe in new air. You know, you can't hold your breath 
in the kingdom. You have to breathe in and out. And God will walk with you when he's letting you breathe in his presence. And he will disappear when you're implementing that spirit through you. But he will come back to you when you need to breathe in again. And we see this in the, you know, the one of the best examples is in, in my mind right at the moment is when Jesus said, Lord, Lord, why hast thou forsaken me? That was when the Lord had breathed out. Now the Lord breathes back in. And, and Jesus is telling these things and saying these things and they're written down to help them record this concept in you. In the beginning, God breathed into Adam and Eve. I believe there are all kinds of people on the earth when he breathed into Adam and Eve. But they're the only ones he breathed into. And it was so that they could bless and keep everything for everybody else. And when Jesus came out of the tomb, he breathed on the apostles and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. He just breathed on those apostles. I believe it was just the apostles in the room. There might have been a few other people. But there wasn't the 120. It didn't appear. But there may have been another case where he breathed on the 120. Uh, but the reality is, is that ultimately that's what we need is God breathing into us. In order to do that, we have to walk, breathe in and out every day <laughs> and do what God puts before us. And uh, it's a, it's not the walk that we were raised to walk, especially if you were raised in the sciences and and medicine, you do this, you do this, you do this, you do this. And this happens, you do this. And then now you have to go according to the leading of the Spirit. Well, you're not. Evidently, you have some knowledge of the Spirit or you wouldn't have got to this point. But now that has to become paramount in everything you do. And and that's going to seem to be a struggle as you let the old man go and the new man be born again. You You walk as a child. In the spirit. And sometimes that's frightening. And you're it. In your family. But uh, God can move through your children. And through your wife. And even occasionally through strangers like myself. <laughs> so anyway. Uh, but I like it when you speak for a little while. Because it makes it easier if I have to edit the sound. So if you have anything else to say. Go ahead and, and say it. Well, I, I have I have one more thing. Um, so Ecclesiastes nine nine, where you talked about you know love your wife and and how you talked about you know if you have to adopt, would that would that um, be the same with if you were caring for lots of animals? Well, yeah. You know, go ahead. Did you have more to add to that? I didn't want to cut you off. Oh yeah, that that was. Uh, my my neighbor Bill, he he, we were listening to this morning's um, broadcast, and he he wanted you to expound on Ecclesiastes nine nine. Well, uh, there there are some people that take care of animals way easier than they take care of people, and and there's nothing wrong with taking care of animals. It is a practice in the idea of taking care of those that around you that are needy. But there's something missing in simply taking care of animals. I mean, I take care of sheep. I take care of cattle. I've taken care of goats. I've taken care of chickens. I've done a lot of these things. 
And there's, that's a great opportunity for children to exercise the need of caring for, um, you know, something that's alive. And there's consequences when you don't fill their water on a hot day. <laughs> so, and, and so it's a, it's a good way of learning responsibility. But there's something more in taking care of people because uh, animals, you know, like taking care of a dog, they, although I see people doing it in a very bad way, and they raise terrible dogs that are danger to everybody. But the reality is taking care of pets. If you're real easy to take care of pets, but it's really hard for you to take care of your neighbor's children or your cousins or your nephews or nieces and stuff, that, you know, you can only take them for a couple hours. There's probably something you need to learn about yourself, about your ability to forgive. Because it's much easier to forgive an animal than it is to forgive a person. And I found over the years that people who gravitate towards taking care of animals all the time, and I'm not saying there's anything bad about that, but if you find that way easier, and and to some degree it is easier, than taking care of people, you're you're probably neglecting part of the skill set of being a man and a woman. That we need to take care of other people. We need to do the sacrifice for other people. Because what did I say earlier in the same show? Is Or uh, either did that earlier today. I can't remember. But I said it recently. Is that sacrifice is a test of whether or not we truly forgave. If we find it hard to take care of people or to tolerate other people's children, and then I, I, there are a lot of other people's children that are pretty intolerable, and I've taken care of them. And there are great lessons in that process. <laughs> but uh, the, uh, if we find that difficult, it's because there's trauma still hidden in us that we haven't dealt with. And we should probably jump at opportunities to help take care of other people, whether it's elderly or somebody's kids or just have the nephews and nieces visit and you just watch over them or even just go down to the lake where other people are gathering and and be there around some of these impatient little children <laughs> and, and and test our ability to forgive and let God be judge. Uh, so, yeah, taking care of animals is, is not a bad thing. But it's not the only thing. God didn't just put us here to take care of animals. Uh, you know, Francis of Assisi had a great affinity for taking care of animals and a great communication with animals and everything. But really what what uh, allowed him to become the healer that he became and the, the, the wisdom that he became is that he took care of people. And then that eventually progressed to the fact that he had to condemn those people, you know, point out the error of those people who became the Franciscan order. And he disavowed them and he said that they're full of corruption, etc. And they're, they're probably still full of corruption. I've known a few Franciscans that seem to be pretty nice guys. But uh, what he started became a very corrupt institution 
because there were things that were missing in his own ideology and philosophy. But he he was a man who walked in the Spirit a great deal of the time, but there's always another lesson, which goes back to what I said at the beginning. So we were approaching an infinite kingdom. And no matter how close we get to the Holy Spirit, there's still more to the Holy Spirit than we know. There's still another lesson around the next corner. We never graduate from the University of the Holy Spirit. We just go on to the next level. And the people who take care of animals and they find a great affinity for that and they find great lessons in that, that's great. But they probably need to reach out and look for opportunities to take care of people because it will bring new challenges uh, to who you are and who you need to become. So I don't know, does that help any? Yeah, that that helps. Because <laughs> okay. yeah, we, we, uh, we, we were on a dog ranch and our dog rescue and we have a lot of animals and stuff. And I, and I do see what you're saying because uh, my my friend Bill, I, he takes care of all the animals and I could see how he how that projects when he's around other people. For some reason, he's allowed it to cultivate it where, you know, he meets people and he's He's like a joy when he's talking to people that he doesn't even know, and people just look at him and smile. And I'm like, it's just, it's just kind of neat to watch him sometimes. Yeah, and that, it's a good thing to be able to take care of the animals like that. Uh, I, I've known a lot of people run animal rescues, uh, but it is a common thread. And even though they can be very pleasant and I get along with them and everything, uh, there are many things that we keep hidden Deep down inside us, traumas from way back in the past, and we need to eventually address those. And if we find ourselves too comfortable in a particular lifestyle that never requires that we go there, and casual conversations with people won't don't do that, but dealing with people that are really dealing with their own demons will challenge us to see those things that are deep down inside us that we have neglected addressing. And every, bit of it, every one of us have them. Uh, and, you know, it, it goes with the territory of being sinners. And we've all been sinners at one time or another. And even though that we progress where we're, we're not as bad as that guy or we're a really nice guy because of this and everything, there are layers in every one of us that we need to address because it is an infinite kingdom. And those layers, those those traumas, those things of unforgiveness. Uh, if we find ourselves avoiding certain things, uh, we need to know why and we need to ask God why. And with everybody, it's going to be different. So it's an individual journey. But I have found a lot of times that people who take care of animals and not have as good a rapport with people that they have to take care of and have to become responsible for uh they're often avoiding some of those traumas of their past that if they could deal with would help them grow to another level and it isn't you know what they learn in taking care of the animals will help them in the next but going on to the next level is an important part i mean as long as what do we say in ecclesiastes this morning that as long as we're under the sun 
amongst the living, there's there's all kinds of rewards and things to learn that we have. Eventually, we get to a point where we're not going to learn anymore. <laughs> we're going to be beyond that. So we want to take advantage. Ecclesiastes, they say, whatever you do, do it with all your might or do it with your might. You know, really put your effort into it. But that doesn't mean that there are other things that we shouldn't also attend to. So, you know, when the opportunity presents, when God presents, and this is what you'll know, that all of a sudden, out of the blue, you now have to take care of somebody or or maybe just hire a young kid. uh, And that young kid is going to get a sense of purpose because he's helping you. And you have to realize that it's very important that you help him overcome his trauma and sacrifice your time, energy, just like you did for the animals, for that kid. And you'll find, you know, I've I've dealt with somebody that just passed away recently. Uh, they had unbelievable patience with some of the animals that they took care of and would spend unbelievable amounts of money to... to to do what they thought they, that that animal needed with vet bills and everything else. But the kid next door, if he didn't mow the lawn right, his name was Mud. I don't want to have anything to do with him anymore. <laughs> well, I actually know the kid that lives next door, and he has all kinds of trauma in his life that most people don't have to deal with. And that that elderly person could have been more of a blessing to that child. But they didn't have the patience for the child, but they had an infinite patience for the animals. And that's telling. You know, I, I, I think the world of that person, uh, and, you know, my own daughter took her into her house in her final days and cared for her, etc. And, uh, but, and they overcame, because I knew that, that elderly woman, I knew her mother. <laughs> I knew her stepdad. Uh, and so she had lots of trauma to deal with in her own life. But I think she missed an opportunity with those young kids in the neighborhood who never could seem to take care of the yard right. And uh, and even though my wife would help counsel her about some of these things, uh, there was clearly an emotional blockage that was keeping her from that opportunity of learning what that irresponsible child who wasn't really that bad of a kid but he he definitely had some problems that he could have helped her learn by her her attending to his see people's needs are way more complicated than an animal you know i mean there's the old joke where you know if you if you put your dog in the trunk of your car and you drive around the block four times and let him out, he's going to be thrilled to see you. You do that with your wife, you're going to get an entirely different response. <laughs> because people are way... I mean, it's a joke, but people are way more complicated. And that complication of dealing with the needs of people, I mean, you think they're coming to help you, you, they may be coming there so that God will teach you how to help them because they're going to bring baggage that you may help them set down and become a better person. But you can only do that with forgiveness and love. And people test your forgiveness and love way more 
that animals test your forgiveness and love. So if if he didn't hear that, <laughs> you can play it back when I get the recording up. <laughs> but no, and, we, got, we got it. Okay, good. <laughs> Maybe you're close to each other or on different phones or something, but anyway. But, uh, yeah. Uh, it's just, we, God put us there to dress and keep the animals and, and the world around us and the, and the, and the fauna, flora and fauna, but also to love one another. And, and how that taking care of other people may come about. Like I say, it may be that you're actually just hiring somebody or giving them a job on the, you know, the weekend to alleviate some of the things. But you have to realize that when you do that, you're taking on a responsibility that may teach you as much as you teach them. And that that teacher, which of course is what Ecclesiastes is all about, they call him the teacher, they call him the preacher, the guy who writes this. But actually the the word... That really means the gatherer. And see, in that gathering of us, in whatever task that we're doing, the gathering of people doing things together, working together as a, a group, uh, it tests, tests the, to see what metal man is made out of. And, uh, there are always lessons to be learned in that. And I, I fear for people who get so caught up with animals that all the other relationships, you know, get neglected. And I'm not talking about casual conversations. I'm talking about real gathering of relationships when people are, you know, sacrificing daily to do on some of the retreats we did in the Midwest. Sometimes we would have to pick up logs and move them. We had to pick up the whole camp one time because we had this terrible thunderstorm and we set up tarps that covered a big wide area. We still have some pictures from that. And we had to move the whole camp and everybody's stuff all over into this and it required men to pick up things that were extremely heavy and and move them together. That that was a thrill for me to, to do things working together with other people. And uh, that's ultimately what the kingdom is all about. It's not about becoming isolated monks in our little comfortable jobs. It's about gathering together. And in that process, we help each other pick up the loads. We help each other face the trauma of our own past. This is what I've told the ministers on the minister's call more than once, is that the job of the minister, and every one of us are ministers, we have official ministers of the tens, hundreds, and thousands. Those are the Nethanim, which we may talk about if we go into Ezra, the book of Ezra, which is but has been suggested. But every one of us minister one to another. That's the gathering. And it may be just a moment. It may be years of time together, whatever it is. Uh, there are lessons for us to learn and share with other people. That you do not learn with animals alone. It's a lot easier tending to a garden and animals than it is to tend to the people. But the people, you know, Adam and Eve had the breath of God breathed into them as much to care for the beasts of the fields. You've heard me talk about that. The beasts of the fields translates into the living souls. That's actually what 
it translates best into the beasts of the fields are the living souls. And the breath of God is breathed into some to help deal with living souls so that they can get to the point where the breath of God can be breathed into them as well. But it's about service. And so anyway, I rambled there a little bit, but uh, I think it's a very important topic. I'm glad you asked the question. So uh, anything else? No, I think that's it uh, for now. Okay, okay. Well, it's always a pleasure talking with you. And maybe someday we'll get to meet. You got it. Okay, God bless. Thank you. Studio's working very slow. It's not, uh, it's not instantaneously responsive. So I click on something and it just kind of sits there and spins for a little bit. Okay, there we go. So you should still be able to hear me, but your mic is now turned off. So if anybody else wants to call in, I see there's somebody gave me a thumbs up in the chat room, but no questions. I see somebody else was in the chat, but I can see the chat room if anybody ask a question and so if they ask a question we will address that time flies when we're having fun yeah I, I need a lot of practice with people calling in I'm going to turn down that mic uh, but uh, so anybody who wants to give me practice go ahead and do it uh, our next topic will be in Ecclesiastes 10 and uh, it talks about a little folly makes wisdom stink a little folly makes wisdom stink. And, of course, that's the heading that I put on it. You know, it says, Dead flies cause the ointment of the apothecary to send forth a stinking savor. So doth a little folly. And, and they write the word folly in a particular fashion. It's summa kuf lamad vav tav. And that... That's pretty much the way that they, but, but it comes from a root word that actually begins with shin, kuf, lamad. And actually that comes from another word that is shim, kuf, lamad, which has to do with something used. First uh, Samuel 13, 13 talks about that. And First Samuel 13, 13, we should all have that memorized in our head. <laughs> uh, because that's, that's really kind of an, an important uh, or an interesting verse, anyway, which is, and Samuel said to Saul, Thou hast done foolishly. Thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God, which he commanded thee. For now would the Lord have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever. But he did a foolish thing. What did he do? He forced a sacrifice. If, you know, I forced myself, therefore, and offered a burnt offering. It says he forced myself, but myself forced a burnt offering, a sacrifice. And, and they, they fiddle with that translation a little bit. I mean, it's it's pretty obvious to me when I look at the Hebrew that they're talking about this forcing a sacrifice in order for a good thing. But his his kingdom was going to be destroyed. Well, early America, if you read Alexis Tocqueville, we were building hospitals, prisons, everything, and taking care of the needy all over the country, and we weren't doing it with government funds. Even suggesting the idea 
of using tax dollars to provide for welfare of people who just lost everything because of a fire in Washington, D.C., was an abhorrent to the average American citizen. Because we can do that. Because we're the government of the people for the people and by the people. But as soon as you said, well, let government do it, it's their job. You've waived your rights. And that's what we, that's why we're back in the bondage of Egypt. It's because we went to men who call themselves benefactors and say, you go ahead and exercise authority. You go ahead and take away from my neighbor. You go ahead and be the ruler and, and provide me with lots of dainties. But we know that's a trap. We know that's a snare. We know that runs towards death. But we do it anyway. And... Uh, or we just deny it, which is what all your brutish pastors are doing. They're not telling you that, that that's how you become merchandise. That's how you get back in the bondage of Egypt. That's how you curse your children. But we've, it's all there in black and white. Why didn't they see it? Because their eyes were darkened because they didn't want to see something. This is why when I was just talking, why it's important for a person who lives a fairly comfortable life they take care of, you know, their job, whether it's taking care of animals or doing whatever it is. Uh, and it gives them a lot of satisfaction and everything. But sometimes we need to do more. Because there are some things that we do not yet see that are hidden away in the dark. We have to, we have to scrub the corners. The Bible talks about that. Scrubbing the corners. We, we have to get all the folly out of our life. And we don't even know what that is because our eyes were darkened. Now we see a little bit and we think, well, we see enough. But no, we have to get to the point where we see it all. Which means every corner of our spiritual interior personality. And like I say, a natural wife and children, you know, the family, the natural family, is built to make you aware of your weaknesses. And if you don't have a natural family and you, you may be too old to start a family or feel like you are or don't, you know, it's, you know, having a guy go out and look for a wife, that's a, that's a struggle. I mean, I, the only way I found is that I finally realized that I couldn't figure it out. Uh, I didn't say like, you know, the one guy who said, like I mentioned this morning, that he wasn't going to get married until he understood women. Well, I didn't put that requirement on God. <laughs> I just said, you have to show me, you know, who I should marry. Because I can't figure it out. I admitted I didn't understand women. <laughs> and, I, and I may have a little inkling of what a woman is today. I certainly have a lot more of an inkling of it than a lot of the people out there who don't seem to know what a woman is at all. Even a lot of women. But... Uh, what I know is who God wanted me to marry. But I left that choice to him. And he showed me. And I'm not telling that story. <laughs> not today. Anyway, uh, uh, but you know, all these stories I have, you know, I hate dead air. So I t- tell these stories. But in this Ecclesiastes 10, that's what he's talking about. This little folly. I mean, he only forced the sacrifice once, but it made made his kingdom stink. 
so he would not be able to keep it. But it, it stunk for everybody. Yeah, he ended up falling on his own sword. He couldn't even get his own men to kill him. He just wanted to die. I mean, he was committing suicide. But, you know, the warnings, most of the warnings in the Bible is about taking the dainties of the rulers, benefiting from those rulers who forced the sacrifice, who exercised authority one over. Jesus talks about it. Paul talks about it. The covetous practices are idolatry. They are idolatry. That is what idolatry is. And so all the religions of today say that it's okay to go to the men who exercise authority. And that's why one of the persons said that I should do Ezra next. Because a preacher here, a preacher using parts of Ezra, I'm not sure which parts they were, saying that this is why we should sign up for government welfare. Which, you know, public school is welfare. It's, it's public welfare. The free education. It's not free. It costs somebody something, and it's your neighbors that are forced to pay into your free education. Whether they have kids or not, they still, you know, the widow lady down the road, she was, she was in a higher tax bracket on a shack of a property than we were. And it took us years to get, uh, finally get a tax assessor to remove her property down to where it should have been taxed instead of in the high rate that they put it in originally. I brought it to the tax uh, collector whose name was Israel, believe it or not. <laughs> His name was Israel. I said that she should not be being taxed at that rate. She lives in a shack on 20 acres of mostly barren desert ground. She's struggling to make ends meet. And she's paying more taxes than people with big fancy houses on more ground. Why is she paying such a high tax rate? And he said, well, that's the, that's the category she's in. Because it was, he said that it was rural recreational. And so therefore it was taxed at a much higher rate. And I said, I've been out to that property a lot. And I have never seen anybody recreating on it. Nobody, it's not rural recreational. It's an old widow lady's last home that she will ever live in. And we were with her until she passed away. We were, we were helping her out. Actually, we're still doing chores at her place for her kids, who should have done more for her when she was alive. But, uh, uh, and her kids are in their 60s. I mean, they're not little kids. But same for the grandkids. But the reality is, is that he he kept her at that high tax rate. And the next one did the same thing. And my daughter went down there. And, but they said, no, well, she has to come in and plead. You can't plead for her. Well, she was too shy to do it. She She was in her 80s. She was afraid to go into the government. And what do they say about... When the people fear the government, <laughs> and the government should fear the people. You know, but, you know, and, and that brings up the, another image in my mind is that twice this week alone, I saw that lady from Texas, is a blonde lady from Texas, 20 years ago. She spoke in front of Congress. Schumer was there, sitting up at the head of this particular hearing. And... Uh, she spoke, and it was about gun control. And she says, I have been listening all day. You can probably find it. Girl from Texas on uh, speaking out about guns. Very attractive, blonde, 
Texas girl. Of course, I was raised in Texas, so I'm prejudiced. <laughs> but anyway, uh, she she's saying that I've heard all this talk today about duck hunting, uh, hunters. It was the gunmen for hunting. The Second Amendment isn't about duck hunting. It's about protecting all of us. She reaches behind and points to everybody behind us, her, and she says, it's about all of us protecting ourselves against all of you up there. And the camera panned in on Schumer. You look at that video. You will see the cheek of Schumer shaking. He, it isn't shaking because she, what she said. It's shaking because of the spirit in her. And, of course, I, I look down at the comments and everybody who's seeing this. I saw it, you know, 20 years ago. And one guy made the comment, but nothing's changed. That's right. Nothing's changed. She said the truth. But you people aren't doing the truth. And why you're not doing the truth? Oh, you want your guns. You want your right to bear arms. And you think, oh, they're infringing on our right to bear arms. You're infringing on your right of your neighbor to own his property without the fear of it being taken away so that you can have free education for your kids. You don't hear that widow like, no, but everybody in the community should have gone down to Phil Israel's uh, business and said, you put her in a proper tax bracket and stop gouging her on that shack of a place. If all these Christians were really Christians, they would have gone down there. I went and talked to him. My daughter later went and talked to him. Finally, he's out of the picture entirely. And the other one, I think there was another guy in between. But finally, my son went down and talked to the guy. And the guy said, well, this is ridiculous. She should not be in that tax bracket. Not a, and this is the guy who reads the rules. It's very interesting. You know, a lot of people think that I'm the rule breaker in the community because they see me doing things and they hear me talking about things like somehow I'm... No, I read the rules. I know what the rules are. And all my kids, that's what I notice, is that they read the rules too. They don't always follow them as good as I would like, but they're a lot better than the other people. But it just so happens that right now in the, our local county government, there are a few people there that read the rules. And when you bring it to their attention, they say, oh my gosh, that shouldn't be. And he changed it and he made it retroactive for as far back as he could. And he gave her the tax refund before she died. She fell on ice, broke her hip. And we had warned her that if she falls... You know, because we were trying to get her to, you know, my wife went down and piled up her firewood and brought firewood into her house every every day or every other day whenever it was needed. And other people were checking on her. And that was good. But eventually she fell and she fell into the hands of the people in the hospital. And they moved her to a hospital in Medford. And uh, it was all downhill from there. But... Uh, she didn't last long after that. We had warned her that if you fall, your life will change. My wife said that to her probably more than once. And uh, sometimes my wife is prophetic. So uh, when she speaks, I listen. <laughs> but ultimately, I have to listen to the Holy Spirit. But it goes on in 10. We won't do all of 10. But it, the fool's wisdom fails. And the unrighteous mammon fails. 
But it doesn't mean that you shouldn't be friends with the unrighteous mammon. If you wake up one morning and you find that you're in the unrighteous mammon. And some people have decided that have decided to leave the unrighteous mammon. And you could say, well, they're, they're prematurely trying to go out of Egypt. They're doing what they think is right at the time. And maybe it's right, maybe it's wrong. Just like when I said my dad said he got in the wrong line at college and, and became a lawyer. To some degree, he thought, like, why am I doing this? I, you know, I This is a mistake. But he did it just the same. And the more he saw the corruption, the more he thought, maybe that was a mistake. But no, I don't think it was a mistake. I think God, God ordained it that it be that way. And the reality is, is that, you know, whatever you've done, you've done. Maybe it wasn't completely right, but God can make it. He can take whatever mistakes you make and turn it to good. You have to believe that. I mean, it's a cause and effect universe. It's way more complicated than I can keep track of, but I don't have to keep track of it. Like I said in a show not too long ago, that God is the best chess player in the universe. He's a 100,000 moves ahead of everybody else. And I just saw a thing, you know, a video where there, there's a painting. I don't know if it's in the Louvre, but it's in a prestigious, uh, but it's a painting of, called Checkmate. And it shows, you know, an angel and the devil and a, and a guy playing the devil. And, uh, you know, playing chess with the devil for his soul. And supposedly the devil says, Checkmate. I gotcha. And then supposedly this chess master comes by and looks at the painting and he's looking at it and he says, you either have to change the name of that painting or change the painting. Because there's another move. It's not checkmate. He looked at the table and it's, it's typical. Chess, chess masters they can't look at a chess game without <laughs> calculating at least four or five moves. And he looked at that and he said, there's still another move. The game's not over. And of course, the king, the k- king had another move. And of course, the guy who was bringing this to my attention as a preacher saying, you know, that, was, that the king has another move. All your moves are up. But the king has another move. And if the king makes the right move, maybe you'll have some more moves. So the reality is, is that I don't know what your next move is. I don't know if your last move was wrong. But I know that only the moment that you're in. You know, the Indians used to have a, a phrase. Yesterday is ashes. Tomorrow is wood. Only today burns brightly. So that's a, Oh, ancient Indian saying. But it's, it's a message that is for us all that the kingdom of God is in the moment. And it doesn't matter what moves you made in the past, whether it was wrong or not right or whatever. Do not waste the moment worrying about the past. Be concerned about the moment and the future will take care of itself. By the time it becomes the past. And and this is the message of Christ. 
you know, the lilies of the field. They're not worried about tomorrow. They're not worried about the past. They're just lilies blooming today. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm picturing I ran over some lilies with a swather and cut them off. But the, don't worry. They had already flowered. <laughs> so it's okay. You don't want too many lilies in your field anyway because some of them are toxic for the animals. But, and, uh, but, uh, but the, this whole chapter, he's talking about the evil era of rulers. And, and dig a pit for your own trap. You're, you're, you're sowing the net of your own trap when you let the folly of rulers rule you. As I, I think of these kinds of principles, I mean, it just, it just stands out like a giant in the room every time somebody says, well, you know, we get Trump in there and that will fix things. And I have nothing against Trump. I'd much rather have Trump than Biden. I don't think we'd be fighting with Putin. I don't think that thousands of Ukrainians would be dead. Tens of thousands of Ukrainians would be displaced from their homes never to go back again. Which is all a part of the plan. Because there will be big money coming in and buying up that land to make a killing on that land when they're done. And in order to do it, they're killing Ukrainians right now. And all your talk of patriotism is is absurd. You know, like, uh, you know, somebody said, Trump is on the side of Putin. But Biden is on the side of democracy. There's no democracy in the Ukraine. He's jailing his opponents. Christianity is under government thumb. That that he is not that is not a democracy, and millions of the average people are facing death and starvation again. Why? Because the Ukraine, as poor as it is, it is the poorest life. Um, Standard of all of Europe, poorer than I mean, Bulgaria. Poor, you know, the people are poorer in in the Ukraine than they are in Romania and Bulgaria. That's ridiculous. Because the Ukraine is got more natural resources than most of those other countries put together. Yet the people are the poorest, and many of them are the hardest working people. And they're being murdered today because Biden couldn't keep an agreement. Because the president of the Ukraine couldn't keep an agreement that they made years ago and that they they did not keep their promise to the Soviet Union when the Soviet Union gave them back their freedom and released them from the control of the Soviet Union. They did it on a condition. That you didn't bring in NATO. And they weren't to bring in NATO in Poland. They weren't to bring NATO in uh, all these other areas that the Soviet Union gave back. Their sovereign control. And, And yeah, they were kind of backed into it economically. But they still did it on this one condition. That NATO would not come up to their borders. And of course... That's what they wanted to do. They wanted to bring NATO into the Ukraine. And they said, no, we can't have that. 
having missiles right next door to us. Anybody else ever say that? Wasn't that what John F. Kennedy said to the Soviet Union when they wanted to put missiles in Cuba? I mean, you're just in the news today that China has a military presence now in Cuba. They have a military, Chinese military base in Cuba. We don't all know all of what they're doing. Mostly it's to spy on American military. Of all the militaries in the world, I mean, Soviet Union has a military, France has a military, uh, Indonesia has a military, all these militaries in the world. China's military is specifically designed to destroy the United States. Everything, all the ships they build, all the aircraft they built, is to bring an attack on the United States. But their goal is not to wage war with violence, because they would lose a lot if they waged war with violence. But you're already at war. And why are you already at war and don't know it? Because a little folly makes the wisdom stink. And that folly did not begin with China. China is not our enemy. If you think of China as the Chinese people. You know, I mean, their upper echelon government, it it might be our enemy and would like to see us destroyed because then they they don't really necessarily want to invade the United States. But they would certainly like to invade all of Southeast Asia, Indonesia, Australia. Uh, those are all on the, and certainly Taiwan. They want to invade all that. And they know that if we are brought down, who's to stop them? Now that's their plan. That's their chess move. But why are they even allowed to make that move? It's because we have been fools for the last 90 years and more. We have turned a blind eye to the idea that going to rulers with an appetite for their dainties is something that Proverbs told you to put a knife to your throat. Because those dainties will put you back into bondage. They will make you merchandise. But more than that, They will darken your eyes so that you cannot even see what's coming. But God can see. And God has got a plan. And there's a lot of people that think that they are serving God by whatever it is they're doing. But religion, modern religion, that isn't pure religion. The pure religion is taking care of the widows and orphans and needy of your society, unspotted by the constitutional orders and systems of government. What religion does that? Maybe the Amish. And to some degree, the Amish may be in better, some Amish. I mean, there's, you'd be surprised how much infighting there is in the Amish community. But some Amish may be in a lot better position than a lot of people in New York City. But ultimately, you're going to need to walk with the Holy Spirit. Because you're going to need to know to, when to be where and, and all this stuff. But the fact that you think you're already saved, the fact that you think you already believe in Jesus, but you aren't sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands creating the alternative to the folly of the world is evidence that you're not really saved. Because you're not, that's evidence that you're not real, that you're still engaged in covetous practices. 
or you're not engaged in loving thy neighbor as thyself. I'll give you a little heads up because we didn't really go through. It's not going to be in the Ecclesiastes uh, 10 or 11 or 12. How do you think Ecclesiastes sums up you know, the teacher, the gatherer? How does he summarize all of his teachings when he comes down to the end? His, his conclusion. And he even says it. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. This is the conclusion of the whole matter of Ecclesiastes, of the message of God, of the biblical text. How do we do it? Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. Remember when religion 200 years ago was defined as a duty to God and your fellow man? And that you were to keep that duty by while keeping his commandments, which means that you had to take care of the needy of society, the poor of society, the widows and orphans of society, through charity, through love, not through force, not through covetous practice. That's idolatry. That's the whole conclusion. Now, you can be a nice guy. You can have a good, rewarding job. You, you, can, you can have... Uh, the prestige of position in the world. People say, oh, you're this. Oh, you're that. Be careful. They appeal to your vanity. But the whole issue that is not vanity of vanities is to fear God. Keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. One of those commandments is to love thy neighbor as thyself. To, to not covet thy neighbor's goods. To not kill thy neighbor. To bad business practices or pollution or, or forcing them to get the jab <laughs> or whatever. But to fear God, respect God. What is God? The giver of life, the creator. He not only gave us life, but he gave us free choice. Are you giving your neighbors free choice? We would we would like to build a school. We would like to provide education for the local kids who can't afford any tuition. And we would like it to be the best education. So we're looking for people who want to contribute. Or are you the other group who says we're going to force the sacrifice of our neighbors so that we can build a free school? We're going to force the sacrifice of our neighbors so that the Corbin of the false Christianity of the world can take care of the elderly by force. And we've become accustomed to doing this by the rule of force because we've become, we have developed an appetite for benefits obtained by force. Because we're actually idolaters. But we like to say that we believe in Jesus. So if you're doing all kinds of things for animals, but you can't do for people, it's the duty to man. He says, the whole duty of man to man. But the whole duty of man also means to take care of the 
the animals, the flora and the fauna. Uh, but not at the sacrifice of men and women and children and whole nations. We shouldn't do that. Because right now, what you're witnessing in the Ukraine is the sacrifice of Ukrainians. They're killing Ukrainians or making them flee so that they will never come back to their country. They're emptying out the population of the Ukraine. You know, what was going on in all those biolabs that were uncovered? What was that really all about? You would be shocked to find out what was going on in those biolabs. It is beyond your imagination for almost every single one of you out there. And I won't even tell you. Because it's, it's so scary. It will distract you from the real mission, which is to fear God and keep His commandments and provide for the whole duty of man. It, to know what they were really doing in those bio labs is, is, y- y- there's nothing you can do about it. That's not, that's not, uh, what's being done about that or what's going to eventually have to be done about that is not one of the moves that most of you will make. As a matter of fact, that, that will be for the nephonym, which I've already mentioned once, at least for some of the nephonym. Uh, but who the nephonym is going to be by then, I'm not even going to tell you that. <laughs> if you join us on the network, if you're not on the network already, I know most of those numbers that are called in are on the network. I really encourage everybody not only to join the email network, but to uh, join the living network, which is to sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. And, and you can go through these lessons, but even even Ecclesiastes will tell you that that this study can bring a weariness. Uh, the making of books, there is no end. But then he also says, in almost the same breath, that he struggled to find the right words to share the truth with you. But then he gives you the conclusion of the truth. The whole truth is to keep the commandments. And if you keep the commandments, you already have a social welfare system for the needy of your society that is run by charity. And it is efficiently organized in the tens, hundreds, and thousands so that you can do exactly what the early church did when the famines came. And famines are coming, especially for people in Europe. Famines are coming because where's the bread basket of Europe? Who produces the bread for Europe? Ukraine. If it is the bread basket of all of Europe. If they're not planting their crops because thousands and thousands of people have left the countryside because oil is not and gas is not getting to the farmers, you're going to see a famine. Next year, like you wouldn't believe. Now, I can tell you for a fact that the government has been stockpiling grain and food and rams or whatever they call them, ready-to-eat meals, for years and years and years. But I can also tell you they didn't do it for you. And I don't care. You want to go stock up? You go ahead and stock up. But if you want to do something to prepare, try doing what Christ said. 
sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands, create a network of people who care about one another and actually care about one another. Don't do it out of fear of what's coming because fear does not begin, beget righteousness. You want to beget righteousness in your heart and in your generations. So anyway, thanks for those who are listening. And see you on the network. Join congregations. Be patient. Love one another. And until then, peace on your house. And may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Thank you.